0: And welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Work, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor-in-chief, and I'm joined today by Renee Bangusin, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. Today we'll look at the latest China GDP figures, and we'll also look at the latest top US government officials to come calling on China. We'll start with GDP, which is always big news when the quarterly numbers come out. This time, the latest government data showed China's GDP grew 6.3% in the second quarter year-on-year. Well, that may look good on the surface. Many might recall that the year-ago comparison was unusually weak as Shanghai and numerous other places around China were locked down for weeks or even months to fight the virus. The figure also fell short of market consensus and was up just 0.8% from the first quarter. So Renee, given all these mixed signals, uh, can you give us what's your big takeaway from the headline figure and all the different contexts we've just mentioned? Lots of work to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that, like what?
1: Well, I mean, a few interesting uh, observations in what you just said. Obviously, one is the year-over-year comparison. Um, The one quarter-to-quarter comparison between first quarter and second quarter, I find um, pretty interesting because first quarter in China is traditionally a slower quarter because of Chinese New Year. And uh, and, uh, if you go back to the first quarter of this year, um, after the reopening, life basically going back to normal, uh, there were lots of people who were sick uh, from the virus in December, but also in January. And that must have had some impact on uh, the GDP for the first quarter in addition to Chinese New Year. So if you look at the first quarter in that context, the fact that the second quarter is up only 0.8% is actually not a very strong performance as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Historically, um, China has usually resorted to um, infrastructure spending and uh, on a relatively massive scale every time the economy slowed down. And it worked uh, historically uh, in terms of uh, pumping up GDP, but it also worked in terms of blowing, uh, ballooning the, uh, the debt at the national level, at the provincial level, at the local level and so on. Um to a point where it has become a major problem for China, so there's a limit to how much uh, you know you can once again use infrastructure to um, support or to grow GDP. How many more white elephants do you need in terms of airports in places that are not necessarily hotbeds of of uh, people flying around the country and so on? Uh, highways and all of that so they're going to have they're definitely going to have to um, do something else there are two uh, particular directions that obviously they can go into and they should go into one is what is truly important for china for the future of china uh, in terms of um, you know uh, growing the economy growing uh, the importance of the country uh and so on and these are we all know there are a few sectors in china that are very important to the government that are national interest sectors and uh, at least when you throw money at those um it has a benefit over the medium to long term so it's not money wasted as in the sense of you know, building more airports or more highways <laughs> right. or whatever, right? So right. that is that is one direction that I would expect them to go into. Obviously, high-tech is a very important sector, uh, AI now, at least in terms of what everybody perceives to be the importance that the Chinese government gives to AI, EV, new energy, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then there is the consumer sector, and uh, there I think it, it's a bit trickier because uh, you can't really do easily, I think in China, given the size of the population, direct um, consumption stimulus as it has been done, for instance, in Hong Kong with uh, you know, food vouchers or restaurant right. no. vouchers or whatever. That doesn't really, wouldn't really work very well in China. and It would be massively expensive. Um, so, yes, you can lower interest rates and try and incentivize people to borrow money to spend and so on. But the, the big, big problem in that particular uh, direction is the lack of confidence of, you know, a lot of um, consumers um, mm. who have been shaken by... What happened for three years under the COVID rules um, have been shaken by the fact that uh, lots of people have lost their jobs. Uh, There's a huge, um, you know, more than 20% unemployment rate for youth between 16 and 24 years old. Education continues to be expensive, even if the government pretty much killed after-school, general after-school education to lower the burden on families. But, you know, we also read that a lot of families have basically continued to do that just through underground and the black market. Um, Real estate, which used to be a sector that made a lot of Chinese people feel very confident about their future and so on, because prices were always going up, Real estate has become a drag for a lot of families and and a lot of consumers, individual people are looking at it as something that is definitely not going to make them rich again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, you know, some of them are looking at the properties that they bought and they're, you know, less valuable today than they were three, four, five years ago. So you've got this whole background um, that uh, that is really not helping people feel extremely confident about the future. And when people are not confident about the future, in most countries on earth, they basically don't spend or they cut spending. They limit spending to things that are absolutely you know necessary, uh, and not you know spending on bigger tickets. They won't buy a new car as often as they did in the past after the revenge travel phenomena, which we observed pretty much in every country in the world, uh, you know, people are not going to be traveling as much as they used to in the past. So, that's this crisis of confidence on the consumer side in the future of the country uh, that needs um, to be addressed. And uh, I don't know. I don't know how they can do that. I don't think that Lowering interest rates, even mortgage rates, is going to create a lot, a lot of demand when people are very concerned about their future.
0: Right, right, right. Well, how about a, a, you know looking in terms of a growth target? Uh, China, what's this latest figure? Uh, Six point three percent. We had four point five percent in the first quarter, and uh, China has said they want to reach. 5% is, is the target or around 5% for this year. Do you think uh, we're going to make the the target this
1: year? I think so. I mean, I think China has a long history of being able to deliver uh, <laughs> on, GD, on GDP targets except during COVID. Otherwise, they're pretty good at that. So, yes, I would assume that uh, they will meet the number and uh, they will probably come, you know, a little bit above it. And, you know, they have so many ways that they can do that, that uh, I'm sure they will.
0: Well, stay tuned uh, for three months from now when we look at Q3. Yep. Anyhow, uh, next, let's let's turn our sights to the latest U.S. officials to visit China, uh, what seems to be becoming a common theme these last couple of months as the world's two biggest economies try to improve their strained relations. The first visit saw climate envoy, John Kerry, come calling on Beijing early last week, where he met with Premier Li Chiang and a few others to try and jumpstart cooperation on combating climate change. But the highlight for many Chinese was probably a visit by former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who recently celebrated his 100th birthday and actually got an audience with President Xi Jinping himself. So... I know we've touched on the growing number of high-level visits by Washington officials before, but do you get any new takeaways from this latest development You know, or is the tone pretty much what you were expecting?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, look, let's take them one by one. Uh, let's first of all look at official government people. So John Kerry goes over there. Um, to talk about what, you know, almost everybody on Earth now regards as the most important problem for the future of the Earth, uh, which is obviously slowing down global warming. Um, yeah, I mean, they had discussions, they agreed on certain things and so on, but, you know, uh, I don't know if Kerry was even already back on his plane when the President Xi <laughs> declared that China would pretty much move at its pace and, uh, wasn't going to be forced by anybody and i would guess probably certainly not by the us uh in uh, you know how to address the um, uh, climate crisis from a chinese standpoint so you know as always it's kind of like people meet people talk people issue communiques at the end they they have armies of people who massage the wording in the communiques and press releases and all of that and and so on and it's mm. just a big circus, uh always. And in the end the only thing that's important is that you gotta let the dust settle and you gotta start watching what people actually do. Right uh in the weeks and months and years following these things. So, you know, agreements or supposedly or supposed agreements on paper um are all good, but um, look, you know, there have been many agreements in the world between lots of different countries that were signed and never really respected.
0: Right, and in this case, they didn't even really sign anything. I mean, right. people keep saying this is climate is one area, and and you know, environmental protection is one area where the U.S. and China can work together. And even in this case, where they supposedly have a lot of common interests, they didn't really seem to do much.
1: Well, you know, I think it's a lot of wishful thinking on the on the part of a lot of people every time something happens you've got a bunch of pundits who try to find a significant whatever silver lining this that whatever um it's um i think it's a lot of uh, wishful thinking because Mm. combating um climate change has a direct impact on the economy of, of each and every country so inevitably countries that are going through difficult economic times are going to tend to, you know, try and slow down or postpone some of the aspects of climate fighting that uh, that negatively impact their economy. Mm. You know, you layer on top of that uh, one of the claims from the developing world, which has been around for quite a while and, and, you know, has some validity to it, which is basically say, well, look, you know, dear United States, you've gone through your development and you know you're a big reason why the earth is boiling today and mm-hmm. now you now because you're developed and all of that you're trying to limit our own development and well we have news for you uh you know we also we want. want that economic growth and everything right. so you know you got to navigate all of those issues and i mean don't get me wrong i mean every little progress is obviously very good the question is always succession of small steps that are progress and so on to solve the problem, or is it going to be too late? Time will tell.
0: I just wanted to to wrap up with sort of getting your take on the the Kissinger trip. Uh, mm. You know that was that was an unofficial trip, uh, but you know it seemed significant. You know he got an audience with Xi Jinping himself, and I, I was curious. Uh, you know, for our listeners who maybe don't follow this stuff as closely. I mean, why is Kissinger so beloved in China? And even though he is quite old already, do you think he has a role to play in future U.S.-China ties?
1: Um, I doubt. Um, First of all, there are lots of things that Kissinger did in his life uh, that I tend to agree with and, and, and I think were very positive things. But he's, he's a controversial figure in the U.S, especially on the left, mm-hmm. um, in you know, the Democratic Party and so on, because of some of the actions uh, that the U.S. government undertook in different countries around the world when, when he was in charge of foreign policy and so on. So it's not like, you, know, this white knight on a horse, but he's controversial to some extent, number one. Number two, obviously, he was uh, involved instrumental uh, in the opening of uh, the uh, diplomatic and the relationships between China and and the US under Nixon uh, way back in 1973, I think. Uh, So I have also read that uh, that President Xi called him his old friend Mm. Um, not not too sure where that comes from because uh, after all when Kissinger was really doing things that China I think would consider uh, to be very positive for China you know and this was like 60 years ago or at least 50 years ago (laughs) Um, and uh, you know so but but that they would view him or declare him to be a friend of China because of that, um, fine. I can understand that. Um, I suspect that to some extent there's a bit of nostalgia uh, involved. um, And also, I think that um, China is usually very good and fairly consistent uh, when they have problems with other countries or regions or whatever in trying to pick one against the other or pit people you know, ideologically at least, uh, against each other and so on. Mm. So, you know, you have China now feeling obviously the brunt of uh, the current uh, U.S.-China policy, especially with uh, the embargoes on, um, you know, high-performing chips and all of that. You've got Blinken going there, Yellen, uh, Kerry and so on. And, you Mm. know, they're they're the Biden guys. So, yeah, we'll talk to them, but, you know, we'll treat them, you know, a second-class citizen. Now here comes Kissinger, uh, and I'm not too sure who asked, who decided to, uh, you know, get Kissinger to go over that. Whether it was him, because he wanted to celebrate his hundredth birthday, or whether he was asked to. Hmm. Um, but uh, you know, here comes Kissinger, who opened up China to the U.S. way, way back, and so on, and uh, he's a good guy. And the other guys are not so good, and we're going to show that uh, he's the good guy because now he's, you know, meeting with President Xi, he's having lunches and dinners with all kinds of people. Right. You know what to make of that. At the end of the day, um, I think that today there is a pretty strong consensus in the U.S. between um, at least what I would call the centrist Democrats and and, and the Republicans even I think on the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, that it is necessary to protect the interests of the United States uh, vis-a-vis China. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not necessarily containing uh, China, but at least protecting the United States uh, for the future. And uh, I don't think that Kissinger is gonna have much of an influence on that, especially as we're coming up to, you know, a presidential campaign next year. Right. In right. Basically, in you know, six months from now.
0: He's like your friendly old granddad that everybody defers to, but nobody necessarily listens.
1: <laughs> Very. Yeah. Much. Yeah. It, it. It. You know. It makes for good headlines and photo ops and and that kind of stuff and. And, and a bit of propaganda messaging, you know, he is, Henry Kissinger He's American, but he is a friend of China, right, um, right. but, um, I, you know, I don't think that uh, that's going to change much.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting point. Um, thanks everybody for joining us this week. Uh, in our next program, we'll look at an entertaining dust-up in China's e-commerce space, only this is a spat that's actually happening outside China. And we'll also look at a recent trend that's seeing Western investors grow increasingly wary of Chinese AI startups. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us and share us on your favorite podcast app. Meantime, hope to see you all next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you all.